reading of God's Word this morning comes from Genesis and Romans. Uh, you can find this in the Pew Bible, page 2 and page 940, and in the following Jesus Bible, page 4 and page 1212. 12. Genesis 2, 5 through 9 and 15 through 17. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And Yahweh God planted a garden in the Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Romans 3, 9-18 through 18. What then... Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. If you have little ones first grade and under who would like to go over for children's worship, now would be a good time for them to accompany Miss Brittany uh, across way. What is happening to our country? What's happening to our world? 
What's happening to people that would make them think and do and say the things that we see every day on social media, in movies and TVs, in conversations? Can you believe what we're seeing? People ask me those questions all the time. And my response to those questions is, well, yeah, yeah, I can, I can believe what I'm seeing. And no, I'm not surprised. Why am I not surprised? Well, first of all, I know my own sin. <laughs> my own history and my own sin is appalling and shameful and hell-deserving. Yours, too. So if we find ourselves flabbergasted by the sin of the world, it suggests that perhaps we have not known ourselves and our own sin rightly. So that's the first reason I'm not terribly shocked by the world around us. But the second reason I'm not shocked is this. If you like to take notes, there's space in the back of your worship guide to take some notes. Here's the first blank in that. I'm not surprised because people don't know who they are. And they don't know why they're here. People don't know who they are, and they don't know why they're here. Do you know who you are? Do you know why you are here on this earth? God tells us in the Bible. He tells us who you are. He tells us why you're here. And we've been discussing that for the last two weeks in this sermon series on the image of God. So who are you and why are you? Every one of us is an image or reflection of God. That is our identity, and it stands independent of our works and potential, right? We talked about that a a couple of weeks ago. You are an image of God. Whether you live it out well or not, God has imprinted himself on you. You're made to reflect him. So what that means is the why flows from the what. If you are an image of God, if that's what you are, why are you? Well, Here it is. Your why, your purpose for being, flows from your identity, not the other way around. So to use my language from a couple weeks back, what you do does not make who you are. Your being precedes your doing. But at the same time, your being, ideally, precedes your doing. That is, we were made to live out of who we are. Your purpose should follow from who and what you are. So, if the majority of the world doesn't know what they are or who they are, how are they ever going to know their why? If they don't know that they're an image of God made to reflect God in the world, well, how are they going to find out why they're here? They have to discover themselves. And how can you, the individual, find yourself? Where can you find yourself? The most common, just watch a cartoon, for real. How do you find yourself? Look within. If you want to know who you are, look within to discover the self. This is the the, the heresy I hear in all my kids' cartoons, and I have to pause it and lecture my children. They say, okay, Dad, we just want to watch the ninjas fight, you know. But they say, if you want to know who you are, look within to discover the self. And that's what most people do. If they want to know, who am I and why am I here, they look within. That's probably the most common way. Another common answer to find out who you are and why you're here is to look at your community. To look at the people who support you. And there in them, 
in our shared way of thinking, I find not only who I am, but why I am. I find myself in my tribe. But I'd argue that the most consistent thinkers outside of Christians on this point of who and why, outside of the church, I think the most consistent thinkers on this are the nihilists. Let's think like nihilists. This is people who think there's no meaning in anything. A nihilist says, if a human being is just a clump of randomized atoms that have developed through an evolutionary process all by cosmological chance, then the nihilist thinks in a philosophically consistent way. You came from nothing and with no reason, therefore there is no reason. So what do we do? Why do you exist? There is no why. So you know, you know whatever, man. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow is the void of non-existence. People don't know who they are. Therefore, they don't know why they are. So no, I'm not at all surprised by what people say, what people think, what people do. But the Christians and the nihilists are kind of on the same page. That being precedes doing. That who and what you are should shape what you do, not the other way around. And for two weeks now, I've been saying that you, humans, are images of God. That identity is who you are, and it gives you value and dignity, regardless of how well you've lived it out. However, a life well-lived is a life of imaging forth God well. A life well-lived is a realization of the image of God in your daily life. This is why you exist. To shine forth Godness, the, the, the character and goodness of God, all these things we've been talking about, to shine those things forth in your daily life. So how do we do that? Kids, think about it. If God was in flesh like you, he had a body and he grew up, what would that look like? Wait! <laughs> We know the answer to that question. The easiest and most objective example of a human life well-lived is to look at the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus shows us what this looks like in real time because Jesus lived and loved like God. You look at the life of Jesus, you see the good life, the life well-lived because he perfectly lived and loved like God. And Colossians 1 tells us that. We've seen this every week thus far. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So you want to see what a human being should look like? You want to see what an image of God should look like? You look at Jesus. What was different about Jesus? First of all, he trusted God. Take your Bible. Uh, We'll come back to Romans 3, which we read last a moment ago, and go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to look at verses 15 through 17. Yahweh God, when you see Lord in all caps there in the Hebrew, it's the name of God, Yahweh. That's why we say Yahweh. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, most of the time when we think about Genesis, we think, what did Adam do wrong? What did Eve do wrong? Well, they ate from the tree. But I want to argue that there's actually one step before eating from the tree where they messed up. And you see it here in verse 16 when God says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The beginning point for Adam and Eve was they failed to trust God. God had given them all these great trees. And he says, I've provided all these good things for you. Don't eat from that one tree. Trust in my provision. Rest in my provision and trust that I'm telling you the truth. And Adam and Eve failed to trust God. And then what happened immediately? They failed to obey God. Anytime you see a command of God, underneath it is a command to trust God. You know what Jesus always did? He always trusted his Father. Therefore, he always obeyed his Father. He lived and loved like God because he always trusted God. And that is what a well-lived human life looks like. Trusting God and then flowing from that trust, living and loving like God. But to be more specific about this image bearing, let's flash back to last week. We talked about how the image of God communicates two ideas directly. First, uh, there's this idea of dominion or royalty, rulership language that's kind of baked into the image of God. And the other idea has to do with the glory, beauty, and character of God. So first, as an image bearer of God, you, like Jesus, are a descendant of the king. Which means God put you on this earth to rule in God's stead. To enforce and to bring about God's rulership. To bring about his will and purposes here on earth as it is in heaven. And that makes you royalty. Now your royalty, whether you live that out or not. And that royal descent gives you dignity and honor in the cosmos as a human being. But what does that mean about your why? If you are of royal descent, what does that mean about your doing that flows from your being? What does this tell us about your reason for existing? A life well lived makes the earth more like heaven. If you're here to rule, you trust God and rule in his stead, you make the earth more like heaven. So a life well lived makes the earth a more just place. It makes the earth a more merciful place. A life well lived makes the world a place where the weak are protected and the unjust are brought to justice. But heaven is not just a godless utopia, right? There's more than that in heaven. Heaven is the place where Christ is seated on the throne. So a well-lived life also recognizes the kingship of Jesus over every part of me, over every part of my life, and over every part of this world. A life well lived exists to spread the name and glory of Jesus so that his glory is known here on earth as it is in heaven. And this shouldn't surprise any of you who've been at FPC for a while because this is just kingdom of God talk, right? A life well lived looks like spreading the message and effects of the gospel. That's how we make the earth more like heaven. This is how we exercise dominion among the people in places where we have influence. And it's the first aspect of God's image in us. We are royalty. We've got it in our blood. And when we live that out, 
We work to make the earth more like heaven. And when we do that, there's deep satisfaction in that because that's what it means to be fully human. That's the first part of the image of God, this dominion, authority, rulership kind of talk. But the second part of the image of God has to do with reflecting God's glory, beauty, and character. So a life well lived is also a life of God reflecting, that is not natural to us humans, of God reflecting virtue. A life well lived is a life of God reflecting virtue. So when Jesus willingly died on the cross to redeem his enemies, when he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's God talk. That's not human talk. Human beings don't say that kind of thing and do that kind of thing on their own. So when Jesus did those things and said those things, that was his divinity blazing forth with such beauty and brightness that our whole world revolves around that moment. We can't help but worship him. But when you watch movies and TV shows, not made by Christians, but other folks, when characters redeem themselves in that story, when characters find redemption in the great stories of humankind, it tends to look like the cross, doesn't it? One of my favorite Star Wars, right? Darth Vader, I hope this isn't ruining anything. This came out in 83, so I think the spoiler alerts are passed. Darth Vader redeems himself by dying to save Luke. That doesn't come naturally. When someone does that, even an e- when an evil person does that, sacrifices themselves, that seems godlike. It, it, it provokes our emotions, doesn't it? Has anybody watching Stranger Things? Strong caution. It's a, it's a pretty intense season. In this last season of Stranger Things, I won't ruin it. My favorite, what's that? I'm not spoiling anything. I'm not spoiling anything. My favorite, I, I'm very, I was very cautious in how I worded this sentence, Jonathan, so as to not ruin it for anybody. My favorite character in the season finds his redemption by functionally sacrificing his life to save the others. We see these kinds of stories all the time. And when we see this kind of godlike, non-human, self-sacrificing virtue in our stories, in human stories, we're deeply moved by it. Why? Because that's the best a person can be. Jesus himself said it. He said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So yes, a life well lived is about making the earth more like heaven. But it's more than that. It's also about your character. It's about how you live, how you talk, how you think, and how you die. We are to be images of God in the way we go about all of our business. We are to live lives of righteousness and holiness, trusting God, and then living like Him. So we are not God's. That's evident in Scripture. But we were made to reflect the virtues that come from God. We were made as mirrors that beam forth with His character, His godness. And whether we live that out or not, whether a person is a Christian or not, we can still see the remnants of that image in every human. That's why we see it in Star Wars and Stranger Things and every great redemption story. It's the image of God bursting forth even in unregenerate man. 
But when a person lives into that, when they say, wait, this is who I am and why I am, and when they trust God and pursue that with their life, that is what it means to be fully human. That's what was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve ate from the tree. So how's that working for you? How well have you made the earth more like heaven? Bringing God's will to bear in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. How well is your life reflecting the glory and goodness and beauty of God? How well are you emulating the self-sacrificing, holy and righteous nature of Jesus? And behind it all, how well are you trusting the Lord? Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Look along with me in Romans chapter 3. Verse 9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous. Despite the image of God, none is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says in verse 12 that all have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. Do you ever feel worthless? Do the people you love ever feel worthless? Why is it that most people do feel worthless from time to time? It's not because the nihilists are right. No. It's because we don't always live out who we are. We were patterned after Christ's royal and virtuous image. And that tells us something about our purpose, our reason for existing. To use the philosophical term, it tells us something about your telos. But the image of God in us was not destroyed, but it was broken. And this keeps us from fulfilling our created purpose. And that's why we feel worthless sometimes. We're not worthless. You have the image of God, and that gives you virtue and dignity. But the image of God in us was broken, and that keeps us from fulfilling our created purpose. So you still got royal blood in your veins. you still got the character, the fingerprint of God imprinted on you. But as Romans 3.23 says, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of God's created intention for us. So we may have a royal descent, but we fail to rule like God in our spheres of influence. And God may have intended us for selfless virtue, but we sure seem bent toward prideful selfishness and the misery that it brings, every one of us. Why? Why do we fail to be who we are? If this is who we are, why doesn't it come easy? Well, because the first humans failed at this. Warren read the account for us earlier from Genesis 2 and 3, how Adam and his wife sinned in the garden. Don't miss the sickening irony of the story, though. Why were Adam and Eve put in this garden? They were to be images of God there, to exercise dominion over the garden. He said, I'm putting you there to take care of the garden and to keep it, to rule over it in God's place, and then to enjoy the presence of God, 
to enjoy basking in the light of the one from whom they were to reflect, learning virtue from him. But what did they do instead? Here was the first and continual sin of humanity. It was a perversion of our image bearing. First, the prince and princess threw off the rule of the king in favor of their own will. And secondly, the idol took the place of God in worship. The one who was supposed to look like God, reflecting his character to the world. We saw how that language is similar to the language of idols in the Old Testament. The idol took the place of God in worship. So they ignored the will of God in heaven for their will on earth. And to what ends? So that they could be like God, knowing good and evil. They wanted to elevate themselves above their station to make themselves worthy of worship. They wanted to be king and queen. And what Adam and his wife did every day, or what he did in the garden... I do every day here. And you do too. Rather than seeking God's will on earth, we seek our own. Rather than seeking God's glory on earth and aiming to reflect his glory, we seek our own glory and we elevate ourselves. So left to ourselves, none of us will live out who we are. So instead, we spend our lives trying to justify our existence. The strain of trying to justify yourself, of trying to make yourself feel meaningful and lovable and good, that strain is immense. And most people spend their entire lives seeking identity and purpose in all the wrong places. We look for identity and purpose within, we look for identity and purpose in our community, like your, your kids neighborhood, your church, or we decide that our identity is meaningless and that there is no point. If only people knew the good news, not only the good news of their original creation, but also the good news of new creation, the death and resurrection of Jesus and his indwelling spirit restores broken images of God. What Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection, and in the giving of his spirit, restores us to our created purpose. Indeed, it restores us to something better. So let's think about these decisive moments in redemptive history. First, the death of Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus bore our guilt and shame so that we could be forgiven for our failure as image bearers and be reconciled to God relationally. So on the cross, Jesus was counted guilty for all of my selfish, prideful mess, and yours too. Every sin that we've committed, Jesus was punished for it so that we don't have to bear that guilt. And do you think your sin is shameful? Look at the cross, where Jesus was stripped naked, scorned, and mocked. There on the cross, he took your shame, the shame for your sins, so that you need feel it no longer. If you will trust in Christ and stop trying to justify yourself, if you will stop trying to make yourself presentable through your works, through your community, through all your busyness, if you will simply trust his work and seek rest in him, you'll be washed clean, forgiven forever. But he does more than that. He also restores us to a relationship with God his father. So when Adam and Eve 
failed as image bearers. They were cast out of God's presence. The ones meant to be in relationship with him and reflecting his image were instead excommunicated from a relationship with him. But through faith in Jesus, you can be restored to a relationship with God. I don't care how meaningless you think you are, how shameful you think you are, how guilty you feel. God wants to know you and to be known by you. He wants you to know his love, his forgiveness, his nearness. He wants to give you a life worth living. And he accomplished it all in the cross. But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? Not at all. Through his resurrection, Jesus uh, demonstrated not only his divinity, but he also demonstrated his authority and power over sin and all its effects on earth. I mean, isn't that what God promised in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned to undo everything that had been done? In Genesis 3.15, God said this, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Jesus, the offspring of a woman born of a virgin, did indeed crush the serpent's head, but not without a cost. He died. But through that process, he not only defeated your sin, he defeated death itself. He defeated sin, death, and all of its effects. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it's almost like history started to slow down and then go in reverse. Death hadn't ever gone backwards permanently before this. It's as though Jesus was saying, enough! Enough with this sin, enough with this futility, enough with this meaningless and entropy and brokenness and death. I'm going to start undoing this now. And it had to be Jesus because he was a man. He was an image of God, the full image of God. Man had broken the system in the garden, so man had to fix the system. Therefore, God became a man and everything that has been broken, he is now putting back together. Thus... Shortly after his resurrection, another massive thing happened. When the Holy Spirit, that is God himself, came to live within Christians, that same death and sin-reversing power came to reside within us. So the same thing that happened in the resurrection, that slowly undoing the brokenness and sin and death in the world, that same power now lives inside you. And what's the implication of that? That the death and resurrection of Jesus... And his indwelling spirit restores broken images of God. So much time and energy and thought and argument is spent on questions like, What am I? Who am I? Why am I here? And how can I have a life worth living? And our fingers, Christians, brothers and sisters, our fingers should not answer that by pointing to a political agenda. By pointing to a philosophical system, by pointing to a product, no, our fingers should point immediately to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. He is the image of God. He is the preeminent example of a life well lived. So what is the end goal of your existence? What is your telos as an image bearer of God, both royal and glorious? What is the good life? Trust Christ. And learn to live and love like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. What is a life well lived? 
It's a life of caring so much about the people around you and caring so much about God's will on this earth that you would give up everything for it, even your own life. It's what Adam and Eve failed to do, and it's what Jesus didn't fail to do, and it's who he's making you to be. So the question is, do you trust him? And has his Holy Spirit taken up residence in your life to begin putting you back together? Apart from Jesus, there is no lasting purpose. He's not just the end goal of your life. He's the end goal of creation. And your future is bound up with him. So does your life often feel worthless? Do you want to know who you are? Then flee to the cross of Christ and ask God to invade your life with this image-restoring life and power. If you will go to God and say, do this in me. Forgive me of my sin because of Christ. Undo the bondage of sin and death and entropy and this sense of meaningless and futility. Invade my life. Do you know what he'll do? He'll turn your life upside down. And then through you, he'll begin to turn the world right side up. Have you experienced this? Have you experienced the power of the gospel in your life? If you haven't, I invite you today, ask God through the work of Jesus and his Holy Spirit to forgive your sins, to give you the Holy Spirit, and to transform your life. Come back next week as we try to apply this to you very individually and then say, okay, well, if that's who I am, why am I here? How can I know why God has put me here? But it all begins with, have you trusted Christ and invited him to come into your life? Let's pray. Oh God, if there are any here who have never known sweet peace and satisfaction of knowing their sins are forgiven, if they've never known the hope that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in them and that he is committed to their transformation so that they would live in love like Jesus, so that they would make the earth more like heaven. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would press upon them so that today they would ask you that question, God, will you come and make me new? We know that you always say yes to that prayer. And so, God, we pray that you would do it in all of us, that you would be restoring the image of God in each of us so that we would live out our purpose for existing, that we would live the life well lived. And Lord, as the earth is changed, as our homes are changed, as our workplaces are changed, as our neighborhoods are changed, as we follow Christ, trusting him, we pray that others will see the hope that we have and will come to know that hope as well. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.